Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for coming to this, the latest in our Eurocrisis at LSE lectures. I'm Damien Chalmers. I'm a professor here at LSE in the European Institute in the Law Department. And at this stage in the, uh, in the evening, I only have two jobs. The first is to perform the annoying role of that trailer before the film begins to tell you to switch off your mobiles, if possible. Um, the second, which I don't think I've done either, but um, the second is going to take rather longer, which is to introduce our speaker today. Today we have Professor Neil Walker, who's the Regis Professor of Public Law and Law of Nature and Nations at Edinburgh University, one of the most celebrated chairs, it has to be said, in Scotland. Before that, he was the Dean at the European University Institute in Florence, and before that, he was Professor at Aberdeen. Now, Neil's CV, and this is why it takes a little while, does generate a, a bit of envy, because he's uh, achieved distinction in, I think, three areas. He started off as a criminologist, looking at the politics and democratic accountability of the police, and returned to that about five years ago, and has written more on law and security, and law and insecurity, maybe, than anyone else. In keeping with his chair... But he's got a long tradition on this. He's written a lot on Scottish government and the law. Neil was the first person to really look at the poll tax, albeit uh, in a Scottish context. I think he called it a community charge at the time. They probably don't, but it had bitter memories for that, so a wee bit older. And he's since come back to that and advised on many aspects to do with Scottish public law and devolution, including their court, uh, this, the court system in Scotland and implementation of the Leveson report. But the third reason, and the reason why he's here today, is he has written, particularly during his time in Florence, but since, considerable amounts on EU law and constitutionalism. He was, to my view, the most informative scholar, um, the scholar who, most, who wrote most richly about the EU during the time of the Constitutional Treaty, both prior to it and why it failed. And one of the reasons why he was so interesting, and why he's been, uh, seen, been invited all over the world, is that what Ian Neil writes on is what we do in a world of, firstly, of multiple legal orders, how we recognize them, what we can expect of them, and what we can demand of them. But alongside this, what makes Neil's work for me particularly rich, is he recognizes this isn't a self-contained debate. Neil has written more on law and globalization, and the pro of how law accommodates with what he calls runaway power. So it's not just have a proliferation of law, but what do we do, do when law runs out and just about anyone else? And this is a real challenge that we currently face in the EU where legal institutions are under considerable stress. So Neil's talk today is a law of crisis or a crisis of law. It's as much about how law can cope with the crisis as what it can offer the crisis. He will talk for about 45 minutes and then there will be about 45 minutes for questions. I hope you will join me in welcoming. Neil, thank you very much. Thanks, thanks very much, Damien. That's, that's uh, a hard one to live up to, but uh, I'll try. The, uh, uh, Damien made the point there that I wrote a lot about the, the EU a few years ago, and, and some, of the, some of the reasons for that were biographical because I was working at the European University Institute uh, and uh, 
you have to you have to write about the EU if you're working at European University Institute. Uh, but also, it was an incredibly exciting time. It was the time of the uh, written constitutional debate, uh, uh, the years between 2001 and 2007. It ended in, in failure, and uh, I spent a lot of time analysing uh, the reasons why perhaps it should succeed, but the reasons why it nevertheless failed. And I guess since then, I hadn't really thought about it until I realised a few months ago that I hadn't written anything about the crisis. And uh, Christian Jorgis said to me he was going to stop talking to me unless I wrote something about the crisis. And, uh, uh, and I said, at the time, I said, it's very, partly, my, my reasons for not writing about it were very mundane. It's a very fast-moving uh, uh, subject. But also, there was that sense, which, which I see in the debate over the crisis, that sense of, not nihilism, but a sense of, uh, of people finding it very, very difficult to actually write positively, to write affirmatively, to write about any uh, uh, affirmative future for the EU in the context of the crisis. So there's lots of talk within political rhetoric. We saw Merkel and Hollande uh, speaking last week about the new EU utopia. And there's such a dramatic contrast between that and what one finds in the academic journals, in the law journals, in the political science journals. And, uh, and I've, I'm uneasy about this, and I've been also uneasy about my uneasiness about it, so to speak. Why, why did I find it so difficult to, to write about this or to talk about it? And uh, Damien invited me to, to, to give this talk. And uh, as of about Tuesday morning, I was still finding it difficult to talk and write about it. But uh, I, I forced myself into trying to collect my thoughts on what I find is a very a vitally important but a very difficult issue. Now, a lot of crises are a crisis of law. Uh, why, why this way of, of, of thinking about uh, the subject? Well, the <clears throat> I mean, obviously there is a law relating to the crisis. I should say in advance that I am not going to be talking in detail about all the regulations and all the aspects of that law because it would take forever and I would expose my own ignorance relatively quickly. Just to say that clearly there is you know, a significant body of law which relates to the crisis. And uh, we'll talk about some of that in due course. Uh, there, there, there is the, <coughs> of course, there's the, uh, the main part of that now is the so-called fiscal compact, which succeeded to some extent, to some extent replaced, to some extent supplemented you know, the, uh, the, the six-pack, which then became the eight-pack, and we'll talk about some of these things in the details in due course. Uh, there's also the, the stability mechanism and uh, the mechanism for, uh, for, for, uh, for bailout funds to national governments in trouble. And there's a whole system of administrative law and regulatory law around the crisis, which is very, very particular and very, very new, which we have to talk about to some extent. But, but what I also want to ask is the question of, of whether uh, it, is a law of crisis, is there also a crisis of law? You know, is it simply, should we simply assume that the, the law of crisis does the same kinds of things, achieves the same sorts of purposes that law normally does? Or might be argued that there's actually some kind of crisis of law itself within the European Union? And why, 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 why might that be the case and why might that be an interesting question? I think it's an interesting question for one very obvious reason, which is that... that Across the whole body of opinion on European law, there is something of a consensus. There's something of a consensus that 
law succeeded, that part of the success of the European Union had to do with the success of law itself. Okay? That law somehow was central both to the effectiveness and to the legitimacy of the European Union. And therefore, law is both, is both a, a kind of weather vane of the effectiveness and legitimacy of the European Union and also something which, if its own efficacy is in doubt, can in turn undermine, undermine the efficacy of the EU as a whole. So law isn't simply a means to an end within the EU. In some ways it's emblematic and it has been emblematic of the very success of the EU itself. Okay? Now, in order to get there, in order to get to this question about what, what makes, uh, what makes <clears throat> law successful or what, what, what gives rise to a crisis in law, first of all we have to say something about what we mean by a crisis. I was just talking to Damien about this and you know, we tend to take the, the definition of crisis for, for granted. And, uh, and what I want to do is to emphasize three points in the crisis. One is, one is, the first thing is the idea of a kind of systemic difficulty, of profound systemic difficulty. You know, a crisis, a critical condition is different from an acute condition. There has to be some profound difficulty. There also has to be, that profound difficulty has to be destabilizing in its intensity. There has to be something which is unsustainable about it. And also, there has to be a sense of a tipping point a point of, of where the crisis is somehow resolved, either demands restorative or transformative resolution. Okay? So that's what we think about when we think about the EU in crisis. Whether or not that's an appropriate metaphor, or whether it's any longer an appropriate metaphor, is actually a moot point and one that we'll come back to. But uh, that's what we have to think of. And, and what, I, what I'm inviting you to do is to think about EU law in the same terms. That somehow we have to think about EU law as being perhaps in that kind of crisis mode. <clears throat> now, what I want to do then is to say, is to, I have to, apologise for being a little bit abstract about this, but I have to start off by somehow asking the opposite question. What, what, what is it about law? What, what are the characteristics of law which would, uh, which would make it something which wasn't in crisis? What do we think of? What's the normal template of law? What's the non-crisis template of law? What does it look like? And, uh, and what I want to do is to say something about that and to say the extent to which are the reasons why EU law in its normal template was quite successful, the ways in which it, 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 it was consistent with a certain type of normal template of law, and then to ask why, why that has... Uh, uh, why that... That, that state of, of normality has been lost, has been put into jeopardy. Okay? So let me start with uh, I've got a couple of uh, diagrams which I want to, which I want to show you. Okay? Right. And, uh, which probably don't make any sense, but uh, I'll try my best. So this is what I call, this is what I call the, the circuit of legality. And what I'm trying to get at here is anthropologists, when they discuss law, they often call it, a, a, they use this fancy term, as a polythetic category. And what they mean by that is it's a category which suggests a number of broad characteristics which occur commonly in particular cases, but none of which are absolutely essential for the particular case to belong to the general category. So it's a bit like Wittgenstein's idea of family resemblance or whatever. You know, that's the way in which we think about law. And I go along with that to some extent, except I think often what you have 
I would probably see law more as a kind of cluster concept that what you have is a number of different attributes which belong together and which tend to reinforce each other. Now, what, I, what, what I'm trying to do in this diagram, probably not very well, is to try and show what it is, what is a normal template of law within the state? What is a cluster of characteristics you know, which make law effective and legitimate within the state? Okay? And basically, what I start off with is this, you start off with the three in the middle, the idea of justice, the right, community, and normative efficacy. The idea of justice is a simple one, that law always makes a claim to justice, always makes a claim to rightness. In that sense, law is, can be, can be com- compared, it can be contrasted to a notion of mere order or coercion, the claim to rightness. Law also makes a claim to rightness in a particular context. Law somehow is emblematic of a community or a jurisdiction. We always think of law as being community or jurisdiction specific. So it's not some abstract morality. It's actually relating to a particular community. Law also makes a claim to normative efficacy. This is actually quite an important point, that law isn't simply, it's not simply custom or moral exhortation. It's normative efficacy. It involves some kind of claim that what you have is a set of rules and a set of rules and a set of institutions for applying these rules, which somehow will achieve a set of practically reasonable outcomes. So law isn't a moral exhortation. It's not a pious hope. It's actually a set of normative rules. Okay? So that's what we think of. Now, normally when we think about state law, we think about all of these, these three elements as being in a kind of circular relationship with each other. Each requires the other. Our notions of rightness you know, are vindicated if we have a degree of community support. They're also vindicated by normative efficacy because whatever else a rule-based order gives you is it tends to give you certain ideas of formal equality, of consistency, of predictability, etc., etc., which are always part and parcel of people's definitions of justice and the right. Okay? So the right or justice depends upon community and normative efficacy. Normative efficacy in turn you know, depends upon the support that you would get from community and also from a sense of the law as being just. And equally, notions of community can be nurtured or at least reinforced by the sense that this is a place where there is just law and a place where there is normatively effective law. So there tends to be a circular relationship between these things. And that's true of the modern state even in pre-democratic times. I'm not idealising the modern state here. I'm just trying to paint, paint a picture kind of ideal, typical picture of how law operates. Two other aspects we can add to that is the, is the idea of a democratic underpinning of law, how democracy underpins the community dimension, the justice dimension, and also the normative efficacy dimension. And the fifth element has to do with the notion of the projected common interest or the good. And most people who talk about the development of law over the last 100, 150 years would point especially to the development of this idea that increasingly law isn't just about a claim to justice or a claim to community or a claim to normative efficacy or even about a a claim to a law for the people and of the people, a democratic law. It's also a claim to a projection of the common good. It's a projection of certain common interests of that particular community. 
certain substantive common interests in various different areas of public policy or social policy. Okay? And again, these different dimensions uh, reinforce each other. There's, there's, there is, in ideal circumstances, a kind of positive circular relationship between all of these different dimensions. A lot of really interesting work in legal theory has been done, for example, on the relationship between the right and the goods and the way in which law has to find the balance between the two. It has to somehow play the game of equality you know, in terms of all of its subjects. But at the same time, it also has to be effective in achieving certain substantive goals. And there's a tension there. But it's one which is recognised that one of the things that law does is it somehow manages that tension between the right and the good and somehow manages to achieve both. And a sense of democracy, a community, and also normative efficacy helps in that. It helps achieve these two different objectives simultaneously. Okay, so let, let, me, let me now very quickly say something about... Uh, <clears throat> oh. Never me. I've uh, managed to forget my, one of my other slides, which is the, the interesting, <laughs> which is the, uh, oh no, my international law slide. Uh, sorry? Uh, it's okay, I can probably just describe it. Sorry? If it's on the PowerPoint, then maybe it could be. Right, okay, see, I have to use the PowerPoint after all. Uh, let's see. Sorry about this. This will only take a second. Uh, right, okay. Did you get to the next one? What did I do? Right, so it's back and forward. Okay. Right, okay. So we have the... So this is the international one. And the point about the international one is to say that that kind of circuit that you have of all of these different types of authority, which works well at the national level, doesn't work in the same way at the international level. And what you have here is a very crude reduction of what we have in international law, where what you have is either laws which are specifically related to projected common interests, the good, or laws which are about a very abstract sense of justice, the right. Okay? So what you have, what you tend to have in international law is a sense of indirect democratic legitimacy which comes from the state. It's a kind of delegated legitimacy and often a delegated normative efficacy, although to some extent we have normative efficacy at the international level through courts, uh, tribunals, etc. as well. Uh, and it's a very kind of contractual type idea of democratic, of, 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 uh, of borrowed or indirect legitimacy. Or you have a notion of, a very abstract notion of justice of the right. Think of regional human rights treaties or international human rights treaties or notions of use Kogans or the International Criminal Court or whatever, where what you have is a very, very narrow definition of justice of the right. Not of the good, not necessarily of a common good, of a common project, but just a notion of fairness, of justice, of equal treatment, which you have in a very, very abstract way. And this comes from, and this tends to actually, in its own way, it produces a thin notion of international community and also a thin architecture of normative efficacy at the international level. So what you have in international law, what you tend to have, is a duality of truncated forms of legality. They still make it as legality in terms of the polythetic category of the anthropologists and anyone else, but it's much more truncated. 
that tends to be either based upon a notion of projected common interest or a notion of the right. And it's because what we don't have is that we don't have notions of democracy and community circulating within the same area. So we either have a delegated notion of common interest or a very abstract universalist notion of justice. Okay? So that tends to be the model for international law. Now, okay. Okay. So this brings us finally to the EU. Okay? Now, those of you who are EU lawyers are, of course, completely familiar with the, the literature on the effectiveness on, of, of EU law. Okay? And uh, one, of the great, one of the great inquiries in EU law over the last 40 years has been trying to make sense, trying to find some definition, some reason, some deep X factor which actually explains the general efficacy of EU law. Now, I'm not trying to somehow trump all of these explanations, but I'm just trying to give my own very, very basic sense of that in a way which hopefully resonates with that, 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 that history of thinking. Now, basically, what you, have, <clears throat> what you have in the context of the EU and what we actually need to is please imagine, this is why I didn't want to put this on, on the... Uh, 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 this is why I wanted to put this on the visualiser. Please imagine that there's another arrow running between justice and normative efficacy. Okay? They're not supposed to be apart. I just forgot to put the arrow in. So it's just uh, the, imagine that arrow. So what you have typically within the EU is you have a kind of... In terms of law, a kind of double serendipity, sort of double contingency and a double sort of element of luck or fortune within it. First of all, you have the history of a sense of uh, a particular set of projected common interests, you know, the, 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 the common market, the single market, as a kind of collective public good which goes beyond the state and one which doesn't require high levels of democratic or community, community limitation because of its manifest quality, okay? So that's one thing that you have, that somehow you have the projected common interest without the same need for democratic legitimation. But also, interestingly, you have a very strong relationship between that and the notion of the right. You actually have a, a very, very close relationship between the good and the right in the context of the EU. Because, because in many ways the good itself is, somehow, is reducible to a series of rights. The good is free movement. The good is the free circulation of the factors of production. The good is a certain notion of, uh, uh, of individual liberalism, which is associated with a package of rights. So what the EU did, famously and, you know, and distinctively, was to somehow occlude that distinction between the good and the right in the making of the polity. Now, that, in my view, is what makes law so important in the context of the EU, because... Normative efficacy, and by normative efficacy, as I say, we mean the very idea of the commitment to a rule-based approach to practical reason and the rules and institutions for enforcing rules. Normative e efficacy can simultaneously appeal to both the right and the good. Okay? Normative efficacy is very, very important. You know, having supranational institutions and a dense body of supranational law was incredibly important for achieving the common good. But at the same time, it also achieved 
uh, a wide framework of individual economic rights. It did these things simultaneously. Law is actually very good at achieving these two different sort of objectives. The luck of European law was that it could achieve the right and the good simultaneously. Now, the reason for that, of course, is that and anyone who, who's ever taught European law, uh, anyone who's ever studied European law, is there's always this sense of the kind of double legitimation, you know, that the discipline of European law is actually incredibly important in terms of the public good to avoid free rider problems. You know, you cannot have exceptions unless they're very specifically law-based, otherwise the whole idea of the common market falls apart. But also that same discipline of European law is incredibly important from the point of view of the rule of law. It does the same thing. It somehow it simultaneously achieves the right and the good. Now, <clears throat> I will get on to the, the crisis in a moment. But the, uh, what, we, what we have in that, of course, is that that's a very kind of idealised model. And, uh, and what you, of course, at a certain point, at a very, very early point in the history of the EU, this narrow notion of the good begins to splinter. Okay? Because the notion that somehow the only good is the common market falls foul to the kind of neo-functionalist idea that the market is related to so many other different sorts of sectors. Okay? And you're all aware of this argument, the relationship between negative integration and positive integration, the way in which increasingly to keep a level playing field in the market, you actually have to provide uniform or harmonious social policies in a whole range of different areas, both in relation to the nature of products and processes, including employment processes, etc., etc. So there's a move, there's a constant move out, out from this very, very narrow notion of the good to a much wider notion of the good. And a type of good which needs democratic legitimation. It's no longer consistent just with the notion of the right. And what you get in the history of the EU is, is this kind of strange balance between a kind of delegated democratic legitimation coming from the state, which is there on the left-hand side, and the beginnings of a kind of democratic legitimation which you get at the, at the EU level itself, and also a notion of EU community. Okay? So for most of us, for most of our academic lives, when we think about the EU, there is a sense of this kind of box, but with notions of national democracy and national community, and also transnational democracy and community, somehow having to add to, but without, without doing it in a way which, 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 which seems... Uh, 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 existential in terms of the crisis it's going to cause because what you still have is this circle in the middle. You have this virtuous circle in the middle between these three different sets of objectives. Now, what happens with the crisis? What happens with the crisis is that gradually, gradually this becomes less and less sustainable. The, the notion of there being... <coughs> Uh, a set of common interests at the, uh, or a good at the supranational level, which is not going to impinge upon national goods, was always a somewhat implausible notion, which is why you had to have elements of democracy uh, at both the national level and at the supranational level to supplement it, why you had to have the council and the parliament, etc., etc. But increasingly, it becomes harder and harder because what you have is, is a situation where not only is there marginal overlap between the supranational good and the national good, 
But what you begin to get is kind of systemic interpenetration. And you see this, you know, you know it, we will all have different theories on where economic and monetary union fit within this. But when you start moving towards a situation where you need perfect economic and monetary union in order to, to avoid the transaction costs of different currencies, etc., etc., in order to perfect the idea of the single market, then clearly, as we know, and this is the nature of the crisis, clearly what that does is that it, 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 uh, it creates a situation where individual states do not have the control of their own uh, monetary policy, devaluation, etc., etc., which would allow them to ease their own economic situations. Instead, what you have is a situation where, in order to stop major macroeconomic imbalances uh, and dangers to the currency as a whole, increasingly what you have is the imposition not just of monetary controls, but the beginning of the imposition of fiscal controls as well. So what you have is, is the Fitch Sharp type uh, <coughs> policy gap or the, 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 the integration gap where increasingly in order to achieve what started off as a very, very narrow European public good, increasingly the member states are constrained you know, not to take their own choices, not to be authors of their own public goods in all sorts of other areas of social policy and public policy. Now, that's a fundamental difficulty. But what I want to say is, I want to say something, rather, in a sense that's kind of well known, what I want to say is, is, is to say something in particular about how this manifests itself in terms of law and how it manifests itself in terms of the, the normative efficacy part of our, uh, uh, of our chart. Now, let me take some water before I go into this. Now, how long have I spoken for? No, it's lifetime. Okay. <clears throat> what I, what I, uh, <clears throat> what you have is 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 a situation where, as I say, you know, you have you have a particular tradition of European law, and there's always been a lot of regulatory law at the European level. But there's also the basic framework of European law has been about the protection of economic rights. Negative integration has always been more significant than, 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 than positive integration. And that's something which has gradually changed, but it's changed in ways which hopefully have been, to some extent at least, fertilised by national democracy or by, by, by European parliamentary democracy itself. Positive integration, insofar as there's acquired a legitimation beyond simply the manifest public good or the right has to some extent been justified through national democracy or supranational democracy. That is something which in the crisis conditions of the, uh, uh, of the Euro crisis becomes less and less plausible. And my argument is that in the legal response to that, in the legal response to that, the problem is actually exacerbated because many of the virtues of normative efficacy, which allowed normative efficacy to be in a circular relationship with the good and the right, get lost in the way that we develop the law in this context. Now, as I say, uh, I don't want to go into uh, detail as to the, the nature of the, 
uh, of, of the different aspects of the law. But what I want to do is I want to, I want to point out a number of different features of the legal regime, which I think you know, very much undermine and undercut the general received historical notion of legality within the EU. You know, one is, the first point I want to make is that uh, there's something incredibly unsettled and unsettling and unresolved about the, the legal regime of the EU in the context of the, of, of the crisis. That's the first point I would make. That the, if, you, if you look at, if you think about our normal conceptions of the relationship between normative efficacy and justice, it's very, very dependent upon settled rules, general rules, clear rules, non-retrospective rules, rules which if you think of Lon Fuller's conception of the inner morality of law, rules which you can predict will be in place for a long period of time. Anyone who's looked at the, the recent history of legal intervention in the context of the, the fiscal crisis can see that that's just not the case. If you look at something like the, the six-pack measures, which were developed over a course of a few months and which were implemented by the, uh, developed by the European finance ministers over a period of a few months and which were implemented very quickly. By the time they were implemented, it was uh, almost at the point of implementation, this whole regime was replaced by the, uh, uh, by the new fiscal pact, the new stability treaty, which involves only 25 out of the 27 member states and not the UK, not the Czech Republic even though it contains most of what was already in that mechanism, that earlier mechanism. Uh, or if you look at the European Stability Mechanism, you know, the, the, the mechanism which actually provides the bailout funds and provides uh, the redistributive element of the, uh, of, of the European uh, uh, framework, it replaces two other bodies, the... Uh, I've actually got their initials down there, but I forget the name, the, EF, the EFSF and the EFSM. Know, which had already had only been in place for a very, very short term. Or if you look at the European Banking Union, which you know, we saw the embryo of this developing in December, or if you look at the idea now of moving to phase four of economic and monetary union, there is no sense of law somehow being settled. The sense here is of law as being something which is highly projected. You know, this notion of the common good is not something which is settled. It's something which is constantly disappearing into the horizon. So the idea is a little bit... This is, the analogy here, I think, for people is think, think of the REF. You know, think of the REF framework, you know, the Research Excellence Framework. You know, every five years you're told, you know, the virtue of the REF is that you know what's happening. No, it's not. The virtue of the REF is that you don't know what's happening because you know that within that five-year cycle all the rules are going to change again. Now, I'm sorry, that might seem like a facile analogy. But there's something there, I think, in the context of EU law and the way in which law, in a sense, is accelerating, or regulatory law is accelerating in this context. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> a second point has to do with uh, the way in which uh, national or intergovernmental institutions, rather than supranational institutions, you know, are beginning to dominate within, within this debate. You know, the idea of one idea of normative efficacy is that the institutions at the level of the polity are actually significant in making the rules. What we have, and what we know that we have, is that we have the move towards, increasingly a move towards an imbalance in favour of national institutions, largely through the council, 
Uh, but not just through the Council. If we think about some of the other treaties which have taken place outside the framework of the EU, both the Fiscal Compact but also the European Stability Mechanism Treaty, again what's happened is that these have been intergovernmental initiatives out with the context of the EU and even its treaty-making process. So what you have there is the beginning of a, of a domination by national or intergovernmental institutions. A lot of people, Habermas, for example, has talked about uh, the idea of a post-democratic executive federalism. And that's precisely what it means, a federalism which is dominated not by legislative mechanisms, but by executive mechanisms, by executive mechanisms which, which somehow create power at the centre, but from the different regional contexts. So that's, that's, that's a, a second problem, a second difficulty, that if you look at the way in which the law has been made. I mentioned the, the, uh, the six-pack law, for example. Uh, a point was made by... Uh, is Lawrence De Vitter, is he in the audience here? But, uh, uh, in a recent article, he was making the point that if you look at the, uh, if you look at the conclusions of the European Council in recent years, it's really changed. You know, whereas previously... The idea of the European Council as having a broad strategic role within European law, but the Commission as being the main legislator. That's been, that's been changed over. The European Council becomes increasingly prescriptive. And the European Council was very, very strongly behind the six-pack legislation, etc. There's a sense in which that general authorship role of the intergovernmental side of the European Union you know, has become a much more specific legislative role. <coughs> A third point that I want to make is that the, there's a movement, and this is, this is an idea which I, which I steal from Damien, that there's been a movement very much towards a regulatory mode of lawmaking. And this is actually very, very important because what Damien means by regulatory law, and which I think is a good definition, is, is a form of regulation where the fundamental idea is, is neither... It's neither democratic law, it's neither law which is about the negotiation between different parties, nor is it law as imperium, nor is it law simply as a general rule, as a specific rule which is actually set down. It's law as compliance, it's law as the management of compliance. It's law where what you have is, and again you see this in the context of the, the stability mechanisms and the various mechanisms that we have for ensuring the balancing of budgets at national levels, the excessive deficit procedure, etc., etc., where what you have is an asymmetrical relationship where one party is in charge of the goals, the public good, but it doesn't specify that public good simply by a general rule, nor does it negotiate that public good with other interested parties. What it says is that we will think up an increasingly uh, opaque and complex architecture to ensure that you actually achieve these objectives finally. So what you have there is like the dark side of the open method of coordination. So what you actually have is a mechanism for the management of compliance which doesn't really have any exit option, where you're doomed to succeed, you know, where what you have is a set of mechanisms which will continue endlessly until, uh, until, until their success. And so the whole, the whole idea that we have within the... Uh, within the stability framework, within the, the fiscal pact, the idea that basically at the European level, uh, the balancing of budgets, 
the insuring against excessive deficits, uh, the, uh, the insuring against macroeconomic imbalances. This isn't done in terms of general law. This is done in terms of a process of micromanagement, which involves sticks and carrots at various points, and where there's very, very little mechanism for, uh, for refusal, for reworking, etc., etc. There can be delay, but there can't be a reworking of the actual norms itself. So, moving quickly on, uh, there's also another idea, another problem which we have within the new, within the new mechanism is that uh, there's a domination by powerful national interests rather than negotiated interests of all states. It is wrong to say, and this is also a point which I took from Floris de Vitis' piece, it's wrong to say that somehow what we have is the replacement of supranationalism by an old-fashioned system of intergovernmentalism. What we have increasingly is, is the power of a few very, what we have is the influence of a few very, very powerful states, in particular Germany and France, but also in a negative sense the UK. Very, very powerful states who, in all sorts of ways, under the new regime, have become more powerful. Like take uh, one statistic which I saw is that under the uh, stability mechanism, which is in charge of the of, of the bailout funds, which is a separate international treaty. Germany has, what, 27% of the votes, whereas normally it would have 8% of the votes within the Council. Uh, and there are other examples like that, other examples of informal rulemaking, of control by the most powerful parties. And in fact, the very movement towards, back towards empowering the intergovernmental parties is itself empowering of the large nations against the small, because some of the ways in which the small states in the EU are protected is through the supranational institutions and the levelling effect of them, of the Commission, etc., etc., where you have more or less equal representation between the different member states and the court. So there is, there is a significant movement there as well. <coughs> Another idea, which uh, I've only got two or three more notions to, to put forward here. Uh, another one is that there's a tendency to what I would say commandeer national legal institutions within this framework. Now, those of you who, who know the federalism literature will know what I mean by commandeering. The idea that the federal level simply takes the institutions at the national level and uses them as their, as their own. Okay? Now, you think of the the rules within the fiscal compact, which actually order the member states to change their own national law. And at one point, at an earlier version of the draft, there was actually an order to change the constitution. Now, that was then watered down to a recommendation to change the constitution. But just, just see what's actually happening there. What's actually going on there? You know, you know the, the very idea of the autonomy of national law is being overtaken. And it's not just a sense of indirect control or indirect influence from the centre. You actually have a commandeering relationship where the European institutions actually begin to become the, the, his master's voice when it comes to actually the content of, European, uh, of, of national law. There's also commandeering at the institutional level. Uh, one thing which I haven't mentioned is the, the so-called automatic correction mechanism, which comes into place... For those, for, for those national governments who are subject to the excessive deficit procedure. And the automatic correction mechanism is to try to somehow mechanise and depoliticise the process of uh, reducing of debt, etc., etc. Now, the fiscal advisory councils there, which are supposed to actually manage the 
automatic correction mechanisms are national bodies, but they're entirely the creatures of this process. So they're national bodies. They're national bodies. There's a kind of fiscal martial law. They're national bodies which are actually set up there to implement this automatic correction mechanisms. They're national institutions whose interests are entirely supranational or entirely intergovernmental or European, whatever you want to call it. But they're, they're not there to represent the national interest. A couple of more points. Uh, <clears throat> three more points uh, about this, 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 this new regime. The first is that there's a tendency towards what I would call legality by homologation okay, or ratification. Uh, think of the, the German Constitutional Court decision on the stability mechanism. You know, for all the humming and hawing, we all knew how it, was all, how it was going to turn out. Think of the Pringle decision in the European Court of Justice. Again, for all the humming and hawing, we knew how it was going to turn out. We knew that, that these courts were not going to put a spanner in the works of the big emergency rescue package. Now, that might seem like cynical legal realism. It's not meant to be. It's, if you have a situation within the European legal space where these matters are set up as a matter of urgency and emergency, no discretion, depoliticised, etc. How are courts going to find authority in that kind of space and in that kind of culture to say no? They might say under certain conditions or don't do it again until the next time. But uh, they can't. It's very, very difficult. Very difficult to say no. And in many ways, and here I'm pushing it a little bit, if you think of uh, if you think of uh, uh, referenda and the way that European referenda have been treated in recent years, in fact all the way back to Maastricht, but certainly the Treaty of Lisbon and also the Stability Treaty, there really is that you know that sign, that sense of you know the you know, the, the Bertolt Brecht sense. You know, if the people say no, then we, we consult them again until they get the right answer. There is that real sense of of legality by homologation rather than generation. So it's not a law which is somehow based upon the people or some sort of democratic generation model. It's, it's, it's a sense of hanging on to legality through a process of homologation or ratification. And it's a sense of there is no, inter, uh, there is no alternative. Joseph Weiler recently called it integration through fear, this idea of integration through fear, that uh, of course you have to say yes, however much you dislike it, because somehow the whole situation has been... In some ways, it's been securitized. It's been turned into, uh, as Jonathan White said in a recent paper, it's been turned into a context of it's an urgency. It's be, the, the claim has been made that this is the only way to resolve the crisis. <clears throat> now, if we take that no notion of integration through fear, it's linked to another notion, which I would say integration through necessity, which sounds like a slightly nicer idea than integration through fear, but it's not really. Because what integration through necessity says is that just as you have to live with the consequences of what's happened so far and don't put a span on the works, also we can think, and this links back to the unsettled nature of the law, that somehow there is a horizon of inexorable further integration, fiscal integration, etc., which is required. The banking mechanism, so many of these new projects are set up as stage one of something. They're set up as very much as, as trailers for a whole programme of law. So not only do they brook no disagreement, but they brook no disagreement with the very idea that they're just stage one of what's seen as an inexorable process. And this can be painted in a very positive light. 
integration by necessity. Here is our opportunity. You know, necessity is the mother of invention. Here is the point at which we have to have higher levels of fiscal integration. And you can have that argument if you want. And you can take that argument if you want. But the problem is that integration through necessity is written in the same register as integration through fear. It's written in the register of there is no alternative. This is not something which can easily be done any other way. <clears throat> and the final point I would make is that, that there's a kind of tendency in all of this to move towards a system of differentiated integration. Okay? A system where there's no longer a strong idea of the integrity of the European legal order. Now, my, my very sense of the, the circuit of legality is caught up with this notion of integrity, that somehow it's a circuit of both enablement and containment of political authority, supporting and, su- supporting and supported by a particular political community. So there's something in that which says that somehow, you know, you have to, however you change the game, you have to play within the, 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 the rules of that game, and the rules of that as a singular political community. Now, what we see with the two major mechanisms, the stability mechanism and also the fiscal pact, is a movement away from that. You know, so we have this, this great constitutional debate seven or eight years ago, which fails and is replaced by the Treaty of Lisbon, and we are told at the time that one of the reasons why we don't need the constitutional treaty, and one of the reasons why the Treaty of Lisbon is enough is that we will not need major treaty reform again in this generation. Now, when circumstances change, and there's a context within which there should be a European-wide debate about what happens to the European Union, what happens then is that very, very quickly, parties move towards differentiated solutions, differentiated ideas. The idea that these things can be done by either the Euro parties, or in the case of the uh, fiscal compact, 25 out of the 27. I'm not saying that the, the martyred heroes here are the Czechs and the Brits. That's not my point. The point is that there, there is a very casual move towards what I would call constitutional differentiation. It's not just differentiation at a lower level. It's actually differentiation at the level of the fundamental treaty itself. So, <clears throat> right. Let me conclude. Take a couple of minutes. Okay. That the uh, there are two dangers with this crisis, right? One is that it gets worse, and the other is that it doesn't get worse, right? Or not palpably so, right? And the reason why, uh, and, and I'm not being flippant about this, because what I mean by this is, is, is a sense of crisis, is a sense of political crisis, not, not the crisis in the streets, not, not the fact that, you know, people are looking through the bins in Madrid uh, or, or Athens. You know, that, 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 that is human tragedy. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the political crisis. So if the crisis gets worse, it means that the, if the crisis still has political salience as a crisis. If it doesn't, then what it means is that we are, we are seeking refuge in what Jonathan White called the, the new normality of the post-emergency. Okay? And that's the danger that somehow this situation where the very features of the rule of law which were part of this kind of circular relationship between the right and the good, have actually turned into almost like the opposite of themselves. Not in every respect. Much of European law continues in a normal way, but there's this other aspect of regulatory law which goes against that. And that 
In all of this, what we have is all the movements I've moved away, the truncation, the cutting off of community and democracy at the, at the supranational level, the re-energising of some communities and some democracies at the national level, so a very, very asymmetrical dependence upon the outside within the EU. Uh, and the danger in all of this is that, and, and it's something that I, and it's one of the reasons why I haven't, I haven't written about this and I haven't talked about it very much, is that there's a standoff or a mutual indifference between all sorts of different parties in, the, in, the, in this debate. There are those who would retrench the fantasy of uh, autonomy, the fantasy of the repatriation of powers. We know who I'm talking about here. Uh, and there's those who would integrate through necessity. And that's they, say. they say it's necessity. They say no reasonable or intelligent person could do anything else. There was those who would pretend that the end of the the most obvious features of the crisis means that we can return to normality and nothing has changed, but actually an awful lot has changed. So that's a pretense. And there's those who simply oppose, who see this as a moment of opposition out with the system. Now, the problem with all of this is that the paradox is that these positions, you know, they don't talk to each other. There's very, very little context for debate between these positions. There are four different literatures out there, and these four different literatures aren't talking to each other very much at all. Damon has written about the law of struggle. He's one of the few people who's actually tried to bring some of these literatures together. We can talk about that. But most of these literatures don't talk to each other. And that's interesting in itself. And the, the paradox is that, <coughs> that these positions and their mutual antagonisms, they're both the product of the crisis of law and the reason why it's so difficult to begin to overcome it. Okay? They come out of this crisis, but they also mean that you have ships in the night. You have these different positions, these different perspectives on it. And it's very, very difficult to actually find common ground. I noticed something that uh, Martin Schutz, the, the, the President of the European Parliament, said, he, giving his tentative support, to, not to David Cameron, but saying, well, you know, David Cameron has these concerns, etc., etc., and we don't want them to be pushed unilaterally. But, you know, what's so wrong... What's so wrong with having a kind of common debate about these, these sorts of matters? But the danger is that the, those who want national retrenchment, they're not interested in the common debate. They want a unilateral debate. And those others you know, who want integration are not so interested in having a new constitutional settlement unless it was a kind of mega ratification or homologation of the sort that we've already talked about. So there's a real danger. There's a real danger that... Uh, that, that, that the very conditions of crisis means that we do not have the dialogical conditions to even have a debate. We, have, we lack the common ground in which to start looking for a common ground. Now, the way we always used to do that in national context was through written constitutions. So maybe we have to think about that again in the European context. Okay, thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. That was fantastic. We've got about half an hour for questions. I will try and take them in clumps of three. If people could just identify themselves and wait for the microphone before answering the question, that would be great. Yeah, yeah. Hi, I'm Jan Kumari from the Law Department and the European Institute. Um, I was surprised when you said that uh, there was this uh, virtuous circle in European Union law that uh, 
it both supported individual right and uh, some sense of common good. Now, the common good was the internal market, if I understood you correctly, mm -hmm. and the right was... Um, the rights of the individuals within the internal Yeah, market. within that internal market. Now, it could work under a certain conception of justice or under a certain conception of what is good for someone, but what I appreciate about the crisis and um, what I think you perhaps wanted to say but you didn't was the fact that the crisis made these tensions explicit, that in fact what you described as a virtuous circle was not a necessity for the European Union integration or for European Union law, but it was just because those tensions or conflicts which now appear after the crisis uh, started weren't so, so visible. So the crisis... Exposed what was papered yeah, on. Yeah, that's what I want to say. Now, the fact that uh, what you said, it's what, what's, what's contestable, what's problematic about this law of the crisis, that you have this sense of common good which is constantly disappearing on the horizon, I think that's exactly what's good about the crisis because there is no common notion of common good in Europe. So shouldn't it be you know, appreciated in more positive terms? And the related question is, is it possible for a lawyer to appreciate it in positive terms? Because I think we lawyers want to have some united notion of common good or some uh, you know, notion of what's right. And the crisis just exposes us as unable to cope with the crisis because lawyers don't have answer to that until someone else provided this notion of common good or right. Okay. Gen gen gentleman at the back. Thanks, Chair. Hello, I'm Clément Pallier, a student Master of Public Affairs. Not very literate in law, but I have to say, like, I found very striking this idea of, like, uh, Law as a compliance mechanism that always like goes forward, and, and like I guess it's also the title of your conference where law is supposed to be stable at least constitutionally. I was wondering if you could uh, for, like explain a little bit uh, more what's the impact on the right and maybe even uh, on the right of individuals of the, of the citizens of this constant uh, evolving law. Okay, will do. Finally, gentlemen, there next to Jan, Mike. Uh, thanks very much, um, Mike, Mike Wilkinson. Um, I was—I found the, your account of the, the crisis very compelling, um, more so actually than your account of the normal situation, in a sense, because your account of the normal situation, although it was presented in quite ideal terms, seemed to expect a lot of legality. It was almost a sort of Dworkinian concept of the law. The law is doing this, it's doing this, it's doing this. On the, the, the first slide, it's about the right, it's about the good, it's about community, it's about democracy. And I wonder um, whether in order to uh, um, understand why a crisis has occurred, we might need to look for the seeds of the current crisis in some either pathology or some conflict which exists in the normal situation. Otherwise, we end up with this sort of dichotomy of a, a normality and, and crisis. Now, I'm not, I'm not necessarily raising the sort of Schmittian point that we have to look for the, you know, the exception tells us everything, but I wonder whether in making too strong a, a mm -hmm. distinction between an ideal of legality, which seems almost 
like sort of perfect virtuous circles and then a critical situation of, of, of law. Making that contrast too strong might ignore that the seeds of the crisis, particularly in the EU, might go back, in fact, right to the, um, the origins of the project, or even more generally, that these critical moments um, can be found within the context of national histories and, and therefore whether, we, whether the, 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 in a sense, the normal situation needs to be problematized more than you did. I don't know if that, if yeah. that really makes no, no, that much makes sense. sense. But, uh, okay. Uh, yes. Should I answer, please? Please do not. Okay. Well, I think to some extent, uh, I'll come back to your point, but I think Jan and Michael uh, are asking different dimensions of the same question. You know, that, uh, that whereas Jan is saying, what about the opportunities of the crisis? Uh, why is the glass so uh, half empty around half full? Well, yes, <laughs> half empty around half full. Mike is saying also, you know, is, is the crisis actually so new? Is this something which simply came from... Uh, uh, and in both, I think, there's a sense of, of that somehow I've been too charitable towards law and law's role within the European Union. Yeah, I think, I think it's complicated because the, clearly at some level... Uh, the, the success of laws in the European Union is an ideological success. You know, it's, Eric Stein famously said, you know, it's about the court, you know, uh, in, in, in the, the Fairyland Court in the Duchy of Luxembourg, etc., etc. It's an ideology of formalism, neutrality, etc., etc. And like all ideologies, it works to some extent through domination. It's about claiming something as a case and getting compliance because that claim is accepted, even though it's not entirely justifiable. So there's that aspect to it. But it's not just about ideology. It's also about the fact that, 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 uh, uh, that law did actually... And what I was trying to do was to explain how it could succeed. You know, how... You know, how and, of course, you could go through the whole history of Van Hendon Laws and Costa and all the rest of it, and there's been so much really interesting anthropological work done in that in recent years, which kind of vindicates the point that the legal actors at that time understood that making the bid for general legality for own legal system, you know, for generality, for a self-enforcing legal order, you know, not only was vital to achieve the common good in a way which wasn't going to be constantly eroded by free riding, but which also allowed them to play the justice card very, very strongly. Now, I think that was always there, but I think, yes, from very, very early times, from very early times, you know, the, the the kind of dark side of the neo-functionalist gambit. You know, that somehow, at a certain point, you know, there was not going to be manifest support behind an, an extended notion of the common goods. And the normal stuff of democratic politics would have to out in some way. And what happened then, as I was trying to argue, is you then had a kind of unstable, but not necessarily uh, a destructive relationship between indirect and delegated democratic legitimacy and Simon Hicks's gradual de de developing semi-democracy at the European level. So something, it wasn't in crisis. It, it came into crisis in the context of the, uh, of the global financial crisis. And some of that is indigenous. Some of that has to do with the structural fault of having monetary union without fiscal union. Some of it is external. And I think one of the interesting things is, I mean, I've, I don't know if other people, but I, I've read so many things by, by Jacques Delors saying that 
talk about being wise after the event. You know, the idea that 20 years ago, this was always, this was always going to be the problem, you know, having monetary union without fiscal union. Well, I didn't, I didn't hear many people shouting about that during the 1990s. So there was obviously a sense within that that, on the one hand, there are the seeds of this kind of situation built into that structural fall of ever-increasing projected common interests. Okay? On the other hand, there are also exogenous causes and exogenous factors. You know, if, if the things that had happened four years ago hadn't have happened, let's do some counterfactual history. Would we, would we be sitting here now? I don't know. It may well be that we would still be, we'd be sitting here still telling a slightly more positive story you know, about how this circle remained relatively virtuous being fed by these factors on the outside. You know, I'm not sure. So I don't want to either overestimate the importance of the crisis or underestimate it. I think there's dangers on both sides. The point, sorry, the point, the point on, uh, on regulation and compliance, it's, it's a general point. It's, it's the, you know, I mean, with, with, within, this, this is LSE, this is the home of regulation. There's, you know, there are more uh, uh, expert regulation scholars here than probably anywhere else. But, uh, and I'm not trying to say something about regulation in general. I'm just saying that there's probably... If you look at the long history of regulation, right, the long history of regulation would say that insofar as law becomes about the good rather than the right, insofar as it becomes in Michael Short's terms about enterprise associations rather than civil associations, then increasingly it becomes about regulation. Because the right is always dependent upon generality, predictability, certainty, other things as well, but it requires that kind of model of normative efficacy. The good doesn't necessarily. The good just says, get to it by whatever means. Use law as a tool of social engineering. Now, if you add to that, if you add to that the danger of a crisis situation, a securitized situation where people say, unless we sort this, we all go to hell. If you add to that, and if you add to that the genuine lack of any easy way of democratically fertilizing the debate because people have different conceptions of where democracy should lie, the supranational and the national, then you actually have a very, very heady cocktail. You have the general tendency towards a certain type of regulatory compliance-based approach added to by the securitization of the European debate and the lack of, of, of recognizable democratic wellsprings within that debate. So I think that, that, that explains it, or that begins to explain it. More questions? Uh, don't. Sarah. Sarah Hobble, the European Institute. Thanks for a great talk. Um, so, I have a question as a political scientist, so, so my apologies. But, um, one sense, not as a societal crisis, but you, you focus on this as a political crisis, and I wonder whether there's an extent to which we are exaggerating um, how it's really a break, for, or whether you see it as such a break from what was there before. Because three of the elements you mentioned, like the predictability or stability of law, looking at it not as a lawyer, it seems that there's been a you know, new treaties, new constitutional settlements all the time. So how is this really so new? Another element you mentioned was 
uh, the differentiated integration. Well, since Maastricht, we know that that has been very much a trend. So is this not just a continuation and something that naturally follows from enlargement and so on? So it's really the only way. And also this intergovernmentalism that you talk about, I think, well, again, that's not really new or surprising, and that's perhaps in a way what creates, you know, the the democratic legitimacy that's needed to take hard decisions. But what's also built into the law, I see this as strengthening more long-term of supranational institutions, certainly the Commission. But of course, the decisions are taken by the European Council, and that's really so new. I mean, maybe it wasn't called the European Council in the 50s or 60s, but it was still Franco-German agreement. That's not really new that that's what drives the process forward. So I'm just wondering how you look at it. I mean, do you really see as a legal scholar, that this is a break and it's going to change. So is that just a sort of a strengthening of trends that already happen? One interesting just anecdotal conversation that I had with someone who was involved with the negotiations around the EMU, he said to me something I thought was quite striking. Well, they knew it was flawed. I mean, this wasn't a surprise to economists that, that it was, that it was incom an incomplete monetary union or economic and monetary union. But what they had hoped for, what they had been surprised about, was the severity of the crisis and also the inability of leaders to react as swiftly as they could. But in a sense, they knew that a crisis was needed to complete it. And in a sense, that's what's happening. Maybe not very successfully, but now they get the crisis to complete what there wasn't the political willingness to do at the time. And that's not, that's a sort of part of a story that we see with the EU that it's, you need the problem, some kind of crisis politically, and then you solve the problems afterwards. Neil, just could I, just explain, uh, sorry, there's a question just here. Um, hello, thank Hi. you very much um, for the talk, it's been really interesting. Um, when you talk sorry, about... Sorry, who, who are you? So please oh, introduce sorry, us. My, my, um, my name is um, Caroline Bishop, I'm a funny law student at Birkbeck. Okay. okay. And um, we're studying EU law at the moment. And what was interesting about you talking about the, in effect, the democratic deficit yes. exists. I haven't had an opportunity to read um, your work about the constitutional treaty. Um, we haven't really dealt with it. But I, will. I was interested, you know, what, if, if any kind of thoughts you had, what would your recommendations be? Would it be to sort of try and introduce a Okay, good question. And um, just just on the front there, Gunnar. Very much, Gunnar Beck. I teach EU law at SOAS uh, and, and until at least fairly recently, uh, was trying to popularise it there. Um, now. Um, I mean, I'm quite encouraged by uh, some of the questions that were not wholly without criticism, nor do I think your talk was. But I wonder whether even that criticism isn't perhaps too mild and too restrained. You've given a talk about legality and crisis in the law, but what you haven't mentioned, although I think it certainly was implicit, uh, is uh, the wording of laws. I mean, you've alluded to it when you referred to the German Constitutional Court and uh, the Court of Justice, uh, uh, Justice's judgment in Pringle. But, I mean, as far as I can remember, what we are seeing here now is really unprecedented. Um, in the Eurozone, there has been a habitual violation of practically all the rules since the introduction, 
since the onset of the crisis, practically all the treaty rules on European and monetary union have been turned on their head. When the German Constitutional Court ruled on the ESM, it said that potentially even unlimited liability for the German Parliament, provided the German Parliament itself consented to it, was compatible with the idea of budgetary autonomy of a parliament. The European Court, when it ruled in Pringle, likewise on the ESM, said that um, whereas Article 125 forbade the assumption of responsibility for the financial liabilities of another member state, what was happening in the ESM namely the guarantee of such liability was the creation of a new liability which had nothing to do with the original liability. I mean, we are seeing here that words are completely losing their meaning in the European Union. I think it's a complete breakdown of the rule of law. And I'm astonished to see, I mean, of course, everything goes on. But I mean, how, if I may, sorry, forgive me, I mean, I, uh, I must conclude now. But I mean, the situation we're having right now is that um, words are losing their meaning. Courts turn the meaning of legal provisions on their head. The crisis management has been delegated to the least democratic institution of all, the European Central Bank. And all this is being tolerated by a German chancellor who's personally popular but effectively pushing policies about which most people in our own country would feel deep unease. Yes, okay. <laughs> Neil, please respond. Well, uh, you two disagree, really. <laughs> so uh, I, I'm the excluded middle. But the, the, uh, I think, let, 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 me, let me start with, with what... Uh, uh, because you made, you made three points. Uh, I've already forgotten, but you said there's three areas which, which, uh, which I'm, I'm overstating. I'm overstating the asymmetry of the intergovernmentalism. I'm overstating the, uh, the, 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 the novelty of the thinking about crisis. And what was the third one again? Stability of the treaties. Stability of the treaties. You know, it, it's, there, there comes a point where, where... So you're saying it's a question of degree. You're saying... By God, it's not a question of degree. It's a question. It's a qualitative shift. It's a qualitative leap, you know. And 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 what I would say was, first of all, on, on the crisis. I mean, one of the in the context of the constitutional de debate, for example, sometimes people did say uh, that you can't have an effective constitution here. And this comes back to the, the, the in the middle. You can't unless you actually have a critical moment, wherever it might be. But no one, no one. I'd be much more impressed by these economists if they predicted it at the time. Right. People were very good at predicting things retrospectively. There wasn't that many people writing six or seven years ago who were saying that there is an impending crisis of this sort in the EU. I mean, in many ways, the, the European Constitutional Treaty was defeated by a mixture of sui generis complacency in the middle and the inability to have any terms of dialogue between the more integrationist and the more nationalist perspectives. Uh, and in all of that, I thought what the debate actually lacked was any sense of impending crisis. There was a sense of uh, impending, of different worldviews about the, the, the future of the project. But there wasn't a sense that somehow 
the clash of these worldviews was going to create a crisis situation. Now, I know all the arguments about EMU, etc., and these arguments, I think one of the really interesting political facts was that there wasn't more talk about crisis. There wasn't more talk about crisis in that context. Differentiated integration, I think, is an interesting one. It was there, I did work on this years ago, it was, it, it was there as a theoretical possibility in the books for a long period of time. And to some extent it was used. But here it's been used in a, in a way which is outside the treaties. So this is like a constitutional version of differentiated integration. It's one thing to say that you have differentiated integration at all sorts of sub-levels, but if you're saying you, have, you actually have it at the level of the polity itself, especially three years after you've declared the, the Treaty of Lisbon is the last word, then something new and something different is going on there. Intergovernmentalism. It's one thing to have a German-French motor when you've got six, a German-French motor when you have 27, coming on 28. It's a different kind of thing. It's a different kind of polity. So, I mean, I think, I think there are qualitative differences there. Your point, I, I, I think... I, I agree with a lot of what you said, and my point about integration through necessity, integration through fear, etc., was, was, and the Habermasian idea of the, you know, the post-democratic executive federalism, was trying to get at that point. But again, we have to be careful. You know, the sorts of things that Mike Wilkinson and Jan were saying earlier that that, uh, that you know, th- this isn't this isn't some ideal scenario which somehow was turned on its head over the last three or four years. I mean, I do I do think that the Maybe I didn't succeed. I was trying to paint a dynamic picture whereby this was a process. This isn't something, you know, the, 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 you know, Satan hasn't suddenly taken over. You know, this is something which was built into the, 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 the kind of DNA of the EU, that this sort of thing could happen. It wasn't necessarily going to happen. It didn't necessarily have to be treated in this sort of way. But uh, I think there's always been... If I took my regulatory stuff seriously, and there will be people in this room who have, you could write a very interesting history of the regulatory dimension of European law as opposed to the rule of law, general legality dimension, where you could see these sorts of regulatory compliance issues coming up in all sorts of other issues. Now it's, come, it's become much more, I think, much more profound you know, in, in the context of the, of, 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 of the MU and the crisis. On the question of the Constitution, my, my, I, didn't, I didn't have time to get into this, but, but the, my sense of the, the... Those who believe in a Constitution for the European Union often, often get a very, very poor press, okay? And, uh, and often what people do is they say, you believe in a Constitution, why? You think it's going to produce democracy, community, justice, the common good, normative efficacy... And some people say, yes, that's what it will produce. And other people say, how naive, it won't produce these things. And what I'm saying is that what actually a constitution can do, you know, is it can actually provide, you know, a kind of circle, a circuit of enablement and containment of political authority. It can actually put that circuit in motion. That's what a constitution does. That's what a constitution does in a state context. Whether it can do it in the EU context is a very, very different question, a very difficult question. I mean, usually in the context of a state, I mean, I come from Scotland, where we may have a new state in, in three or four years' time. And whatever happens, if you have a new state, then you'll have, you'll have the impetus of a vote, a vote for change, and you'll have the template of what it is to be a national polity. In the EU, you don't have that. You, whatever you're going to have, you don't have that. It's precisely because you don't have that impetus. But what you have is people who do nevertheless share the common, a common political space. They share it in different terms. 
If you share a common political space in different terms, if you want to make some kind of polity out of that, if you want that polity to somehow respond to these different notions in the circuit of legality, then I simply lack the imagination to see how you do that other than through the framework of something like a constitution. Now, and, it, and what I was trying to say at the end is when I see people disappearing down the different attitudes which don't speak to each other, I don't see an alternative to that. I mean, a constitution, Miguel Maduro made the point when he talks about comparative institutional advantage, saying it's not, it's not about whether your proposal is realistic, it's about whether it's any less realistic than any of the other proposals which are on the table. And there aren't many proposals on the table you know, which actually take seriously the need to actually respond to these very, very different constituencies within the European Union with a very, very different view of its future. Sorry? Constitutional court. So, I mean, would, that, would there not be a requirement that then that there would be... How would, how would well, that's one of the problems. Yeah. Once, you, once you start talking about the language of no, but once you start talking about the language of constitution, you then take in that whole baggage of state constitutionalism and the, the highly empowered constitutional court, etc., etc., which might not be the answer. I'm not talking about a constitution in that sense. I'm talking about constitution as something which knits together these different aspects of legality. And to some extent, a written constitution, a constitutional process, can actually bring these sorts of things to the surface. But uh, it's. It, it's just one idea. We've got about six or seven minutes left. That was so one question. I've got, I've got a question if no one... I've, I've got a question for you, Neil, because I've been worrying about it. I don't fully believe this question myself, but I think I have to put it partly for the same reasons that Sarah Hobbles put her question. And it's a things aren't as bad as you say type of question. And it's not about the continuity of the EU. It's rather about the immodesty of law that might be being suggested. Like, if you think about most public law courses, or constitutional law courses, almost anywhere in Europe, they don't spend a lot of time on budgetary law or law of macroeconomic performance or any of those things. Mm. Thank God. Uh, partly because they're being incredibly boring. I mean, you can look in the... There's, there's loads of arcane detail along the lines that you say. And it's partly because we don't think those are the things that should be guided by law in the way that we classically look at them, maybe in your circuit of legality. And political scientists say, historically, maybe this is part of the problem, that executives have have dominated more than parliaments, budgetary setting. So you you have this tendency beneath the EU language anyway. Now, what might happen if you legalise it is it's a federalising gambit in the way you talked about the initial Court of Justice judgments. You're doing something that isn't historically done at a national level, but it's certainly very centralising. And you also lose the point that might be one of the geniuses of the EU, that precisely because it's doing all these things that people don't like, that for the first time people argue and debate budgets and macroeconomics in a much more engaged way than typically happens here in the UK, where it's either a ignored or fetishised under things like the pasty taxes. Mm-hmm. So the argument is that this does have a democratic potential and it might be precisely that it's not fully legal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, although, I mean, we're, we're in, in, in your article in the law... I'm not being consistent here, I have to say. <laughs> in the law of struggle, no, but one of the things that struck me was 
you know, an idea of the regulatory model in, in, the, in the somewhat uh, pejorative way that I, I painted it. You're saying that, I think you actually said it would be much more honest if this was, this was seen as a question of political economy, right? You know, and basically, yes, there are budgetary decisions to be made, and yes, there is a context of austerity within which these budgetary decisions have to be made, but they're still national budgetary positions. positions they're, not, they're not recalcitrant national children having to be brought to order. Now, now, if you think about law, you know, so that's why I'm saying regulation stands on, stands between two different conceptions of law or two different moments in law. There's a kind of generative moment where law relates to democracy and then there's a kind of imperium moment where law actually uh, uh, imposes its, its, its rules. You know, and most, most, you know, there's a consistency between most, most, most of most of ideas of representative democracy are depend upon a kind of second level, second order, first order relationship between these sorts of things. And I'm only talking about legality in these sorts of terms, not a legality which somehow tries to juridify these relationships. It's interesting, though, because I, w- I was thinking the the uh, uh, it's probably true in in, in European law schools. In North American law schools, you're more likely to get that kind of thing. You're more likely to get that, that sort of detail uh, and that sense that somehow these things actually belong within, within a legal framework. Clearly, there's a different kind of regulatory model of what law is and what, what the core of legal study is you know, there than there is within the European context. But, uh, yeah, no, so that was just a little aside. But, uh, so, yes... Neil, thanks a lot. That was fantastic. I think that put me in my place. Before we thank the speaker, I want to request to invite you all to come back here in two weeks and in 13 days' time for our next uh, two talks in the Eurocrisis series. We have Professor Bartolini from EUI coming on the 19th, I think it is, to talk about the crisis and new Eurozone governance legitimacy in EU institutions. I suspect it'll be something along the lines of how, how, how rubbish everything is, is a bit like today. But then the next day, we have Simon Hicks from the LSE, who is a bit more optimistic, uh, who says, democratising macroeconomic union. So he seems to think we are moving to some new constitutional structure in Europe and how everything will be honey and roses. But before you come to those, I'd like you first of all to thank uh, Professor Neil Walker for his talk today. Thank you.